This has been a little bit different. Um, uh, you've noticed, if you've, if you've been paying attention, that I've been teaching these different s- stories and accounts from Advent out of order, and uh, that wasn't intentional. Um, it's been that as God has revealed different things about waiting, and, and the idea of waiting in Advent, that each time it's, it's, there's something new in it that gets wrapped up. And, and so before we're done, at some point I will uh, tell the story straight through, maybe even on Christmas Eve, but, but, uh, so in case you're not familiar with it. Um, but as we pick and choose kind of of these different accounts because of different things they teach us about waiting, um, I hope you'll be patient with that. And today's is particularly confusing. Today, the question that, that came up that I want to wrestle through is, what is our role in waiting? And I think this is a really common question and a troubling question that we have. Um, what are we supposed to be doing? So we, we looked at <clears throat> the idea that we're supposed to be watching and listening, but those have kind of a passive feel to them as well, like I'm supposed to be you know, sitting in the temple for 80 years watching and listening type of thing, that, that type of idea. Um, I'm supposed to be eager in my waiting and patient in my waiting, but, but the real problem that we struggle with and that we want to deal with realistically is what am I supposed to do while I'm waiting? In fact, are doing and waiting contradictions? Isn't that what waiting means, is, is not doing? Isn't that, isn't that the idea? Um, how much doing can I do and still be considered to be waiting? That's the question I'm asking here. What, what am I allowed to do or how much am I allowed to do in order for that to be the case? Um, my father had a plaque in his office uh, when he was uh, at, at the, as a forestry professor when I would go up there and see it. It said, everything cometh to he who waiteth, so long as he who waiteth worketh like heck while he waiteth. <laughs> that, was what was, that was what was in his office. Um, is waiting on the Lord the same thing as passivity? Do I get to be an active member of my life while I'm waiting on the Lord? So I'm going to ask it now the way that, that, that you want me to ask it. If I'm single and I want to be married someday, can I join a dating app and still be considered to be waiting on the Lord? That's, that's, the, what we're, that's really what we're coming down to, Right? Like, what, at what stage am I kind of taking something away from that? Like, at what stage am I saying, okay, you know what? I'm done with waiting on the Lord. Now it's my turn. And, and when, when have I done that versus behaviorally, when am I acting, but I'm still waiting? And I'll, I will go ahead and tell you up front, I'm not going to give you an answer to this question in this sermon. Um, I don't have one for you not a behavioral one. I, I promise to give you one behavioral way to know you're no, that you are no longer waiting on the Lord. But beyond that, the problem is God judges waiting. Waiting is a condition of the heart, I think, more than it is a condition of our activity, more than our behavior at times. And that's why what struck was this time was that this, this is a waiting in trust conversation. That that's what we want to be asking is, at what point and while I'm waiting, have I ceased to trust the one that I am waiting on? If I'm waiting on the Lord, when am I no longer trusting Him? But see, it's, it's, not, it's not so easy as purely behavior. Because the behavior that we are called to do and to live out can be done and often is done in the midst of waiting. And the Bible doesn't put them as contradictions to one another. It integrates them all over the place. One that struck me is in 1 Corinthians 3. This is when the Apostle Paul 
He's worked up and angry um, because people keep trying to pit his work against the work of other apostles and missionaries and leaders. And, and they're trying to say, like, no, no, this is who did this, and this, is, this, was his, this was the person who's really important in the whole process. This person is less important or more important. And there's a debate apparently going on. And in that, the Apostle Paul says this. <coughs> he references that one of them plants, and another one waters, and another one sows, and another one does whatever. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 3, um, 7 through 9. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he does, he, it's just a little bit of hyperbolic language there, isn't it? I mean, a hyper, there's, if you've raised a garden of any kind, there's some hyperbole here. It's not that planting and, and watering don't mean anything, as in they don't matter. It is that in the midst of watering and in the midst of tending and in the midst of planting, you're fundamentally still trusting because you can do all these things that you can do and ought to do, but you cannot make something grow. Only God can do that. This is why I came back to the idea of trusting. He who plants and he who waters are one, for each will receive his wages according to his labor. Notice, nothing wrong with the labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. The master of integrating these two concepts of working and trusting, working and waiting, is a man named Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah was really the master at this. He understood fully the amount of work that he had to do and how desperately he was waiting on God for every part of it. You see it all through his writings and all through his talks as he is, this is a man who, who 100% was depending on God for everything. He knew he was in his own strength, powerless to accomplish what he believed God had called him to do. But he worked like a dog. He worked hard, and he worked long hours, and he got amazing things done, but he always gave credit to the Lord. Here's some examples, just a couple of quick examples. We could spend way too long here, but a couple of quick examples. Nehemiah 4.9. We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So which is it? Did they pray and trust God, or did they put guards on the wall? And the answer is yes. He did not see those as contradictory in any way. I'm trusting in God to take care of me, and we'll be putting guards on the wall. Here's another one, Nehemiah 4.20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Well, now wait a minute. If God's going to fight for you, why, does he, why do we have to rally? Right? Because those ideas are not contradictory. Us working and doing our part in what God has called us to do and to be faithful to do what God has called us to do isn't in contradiction with waiting on God. The results of my waiting and the actions I take while at or at the end of waiting are in His hands. This is fundamentally trust. Trust is when I can leave something in someone else's hands. Trust and joy, not surprisingly, today is our, the joy candle. They go hand in hand. Joy is the decision to borrow happiness from the future. Trust is the confidence in the one upon whom the future relies. So you can see how those things go together. That I'm trusting in the God who is in charge of the future, and my joy comes from what I can see in the future and borrow there from there. Now, the definition, borrowing happiness from the future, sounds like a psychological definition more than a theological definition. If you know me, <coughs> you know that, again, I think those concepts should always be integrated. But 
But I will say, I agree that I, that, that has more of that sound. So what's special about Christianity when it comes to joy? Well, when you start facing chronic pain, you look to the future, and every time you look to the future, you see pain, not happiness to borrow from. When you see isolation or loneliness in the future, you look to the future and you say, yeah, I, I'm trying to borrow something positive from the future, and I'm not seeing anything in the future for me to borrow from. Or when you get old, just getting old means there's less things between you and death to look forward to. Less things you're able to do if, you're, if you are poverty-stricken. There are less things for you to choose from. And you look to the future and you say, I don't see that many things I could borrow. Now, that's all fine. It's all good to borrow those things. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a date with my wife next week. I can look forward to that. Even when things are hard here, I can go, hey, that's going to be fun. <coughs> I've got people coming, uh, coming over to play cards. And I can go, man, things are hard right now. But you know what? Cards later, that's going to be awesome. That's joy. It's joy when I borrow something positive from the future and experience the emotion of it now. By the way, worry is borrowing anxiety from the future. So that I could be in a situation where things are really good, things are great, I'm hanging out with friends, I'm, I'm hanging out with my family, things are going really well, and then I start thinking about a test that I've got, or a challenge that I've got ahead of me, or a tough conversation, and lo and behold, I'm now feeling those feelings from the future now. It's called worry. Um, we're encouraged against that biblically all over the place. Instead, joy is what we should choose, looking to the future. But for us, as Christians, here's what's really cool. I get to look forward to, I can borrow joy from a future a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, a hundred thousand years from now. And it's joy of being in an eternal place with a God who is crazy about us, who is limitless in his ability to bring us happiness, to, to show his kindness, to show us his love and his grace. He's limitless in his ability to do that. And he's limitless in his desire to do that. And he's limitless in his time to spend doing it. That's a nice combination. That I could say, wow, I don't, things are bad now or things are rough now. Or even at the end of my life, I can literally on my deathbed racked with pain experience joy in knowing what comes next. What comes later. What it's going to be like to no longer have pain, etc. That's why there's a theological aspect to that definition of joy. I look to the future not just the short-term temporal future, but future forever. I always loved the fact that you have final exams right before Christmas break. I don't know about you, but I borrowed a lot of joy during finals, Christmas cheer-wise. When you're going through it, you can borrow some, and your heart will still grow three sizes sitting in that exam, remembering as soon as this test is over, it's over in another 30 minutes, no matter how bad I bomb it, it will at least be done. And then I go home, and it's Christmas time. Man, that's nice. Christmas reminds us of why joy is so particularly a virtue for us because we have been waiting for so long. And then God came near. He joined us. And here's something you may have never considered before, but Jesus Christ came. And He came not only to join us in this joy and in this pain, He came to join us in the waiting. Isn't it wild to consider that Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, the one who created the universe and time itself, learned how to wait, experiencing life as a human being? What an amazing thought. How about what a funny idea that is Jesus Christ waiting on the leadership of the Father and the Spirit had to learn to say phrases like, it is not yet my time. What a wild thing for a God to say. He totally, um, this is a, part of the good gifts he has in store for us, that where he is, we may also be. He told us this straight up. Now, Jesus, even when he says stuff, this is a little backhanded compliment. No, it's not even a compliment, really. It's just, it's just backhanded when he says... 
in Matthew 7:11, "If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask him?" See, we follow a God who loves to give good gifts. And Jesus kind of mocks the fact that we like to give good gifts to our children and we're terrible at this stuff. How much better at it will God be when he has forever to pour out these good gifts on us? And now we can ask. So when we borrow happiness from eternity and we can live in it now. This is the trust while we wait idea. So how do we know if we're waiting with trust or not? It's not clear just judging from behavior. One person can be waiting with trust behaviorally, and with the very same behavior, someone else is just being lazy or scared. One person can be waiting with intentional work, and another person in their fear is being a control freak. Those aren't waiting with patience. They're not waiting necessarily with eagerness. They're just waiting. So looking for waiting with trust day, that's going to be the look of what we're trying to figure out, this heart set and this mindset. So many varied situations in which we find ourselves waiting and so let me comment on that. There's the type of waiting that comes from just being irritated. It's ir- an irritating kind of waiting just from bad customer service. You find yourself waiting somewhere, and the only reason you're waiting is because of somebody else's incompetence. That's just irritating. It doesn't mean it's not teachable. It's good practice for when we have to wait for something significant. Of course, there's dread-filled waiting. <coughs> there's the waiting that comes with... Uh, um, well, the most refined example I could think of from my childhood involved waiting outside the principal's office. Um, I, I got to do plenty of that as a child, and it is, you don't know what's coming, you just know it's not going to be good. It's, 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 it's not going to be a fun experience. But you think about the serious versions of this, waiting for a verdict from a court case for yourself or a loved one, waiting for a prognosis from a doctor, waiting for um, a return phone call in the middle of the night, or a 4.45 p.m. meeting with the boss in their office on Friday afternoon. Those rarely go well. Um, but then there's also waiting with meaning. And this is the kind of waiting that we experience when we know something important is coming. And for something that we hope is good is coming. Of course, because we're on earth, even when we're waiting on something that we think is good, it may end up being bad, and we, that's, that taint is always there for us. The, the, the challenge of that is always there. Even when we're waiting for something that's supposed to be good, it can end up being disappointing or horrific or traumatic. Um, waiting for a blessing from God can be among the most challenging kinds of waiting. Interesting. Waiting for a blessing or a good thing from God can be one of the hardest things. A job, a gift, a celebration, or meeting someone special. Waiting on God's blessing can be really tough. But I think waiting on a spouse nearly is nearly at the top, but probably waiting on the child is the purest form of this. Waiting on a child through adoption, pregnancy, the return of a prodigal child. This is, this is among the most challenging for us, I think. Thinking through this, I knew that I would come to these people at some point when we talked about waiting, especially in Advent. Um, but when Ginger and I got married, we did the traditional, like we're going to wait a few years before starting to to have children. And so we did. We waited for a few years. And then, you know, it's supposed to happen where then you decide you're going to start having children, and you start having children. And that's not exactly how it played out with us. It actually took a while. Um, and so it was, it was a fascinating experience looking back and to think through the challenges with that and how hard that was. Um, there were days when Ginger would come home from the grocery store just brokenhearted, seeing somebody treating their children badly 
in the store and saying, she wanted to go up to him and say, listen, if you don't want them, I'll take them, right? I mean, if you don't want them, I'm, I'm desperately waiting to have a child. You've got, you've got a bunch of them and, don't, and apparently don't know how to treat them. So why don't we just solve both our problems at the same time, right? This is a, it's a, it's a challenge always to, to face those type of situations. And that happened for month after month after month of not being pregnant. And then one of the, one of the scary ones with pregnancy, of course, is then it can seem like God has now decided to give you this good gift. Oh, now we are pregnant. And then a few months later, we're not. And so we had two miscarriages before Mark was born. And, and so during that time, several years going by that we want to be parents and we aren't yet parents. And that type of waiting is a refined type of waiting. How do you wait and trust? And what does it mean to trust? What are you allowed to do and not do? And what are you supposed to do and not do? And, and, and what, at what point am I taking matters into my own hands versus trusting in the Lord for, for His guidance? And, and people have all kinds of messed up thinking in this. It's very easy for us to do that in those moments of waiting for God's blessings. I think waiting on the child is somehow the most refined version of waiting on the Lord, and that's where we find Zechariah and Elizabeth in the Bible. They seem to have given up on waiting, but they are still feeling it, as you'll see before the story is over. Advent waiting is special. It's the ultimate waiting on God's blessing, and of course, it's waiting on a child first time around. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we talked about who Luke was last week. If you don't know, you can go back and listen to that. And Luke 1, 5, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. By the way, his name means he who remembers God or God remembers him. In the division of Abijah, and he had a wife with the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, which means God is my oath. <clears throat> and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, if you're a kid who grew up in church, you remember, man, it seems like all the women in the Bible are barren, right? It seems like all these women that you learn about in the Bible, it's like, and here's another one who can't have a child. Here's another one who can't have a child. It's really wild. Well, there's actually only like five or six of them, maybe seven. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren, and Rebecca, Isaac's wife, and Rachel, Jacob's wife, and Samuel's, Samson's mother, we don't get her name, and Samuel's mother, Hannah. These are all women, though, in the Bible, significant women, who we, we are introduced to them when they're in the stage of not being able to have children. And now we come to Elizabeth. And it is vital to note that this passage makes it abundantly clear that her not having a child is not a punishment. This is not because she's been bad or sinful. That's not what this is about. In fact, it not only says what they were righteous, but it actually uses the phrase, if you can imagine, they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Anybody willing to claim that? Walking, that you've walked blamelessly in all of the statutes and commandments? I hope not, because um, then you'll be breaking one. Um, this, is, this, is, this is not a punishment. This is not a bad thing. She just doesn't have a child. This is just the way her life has been lived out. They're both of the priestly line. They are both righteous. Verse 8, And now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Zechariah is chosen by casting lots um, for a special role in the temple. Twice a day, three priests would go into the temple. One would scoop out the old ashes from the incense burner. Someone would put in new, fresh, hot coals. 
And the third one would sprinkle the incense across these coals. And then the incense would burn off the coals and create a pleasant scent in the, not only in the temple, but meant to represent the prayers of Israel. And then that one was supposed to then pray then for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, that maybe that the Messiah would come. And the people who were present were supposed to wait outside and also be praying. And then this priest, when he was done, would come out and, and would close their time in prayer. That's what was supposed to happen. And so the casting of lots, it's been, that had been done since the time of David, King David, because there were so many priests, had, they had set up a, a pattern of who got to do what when, and there were breakdowns, and, and a lot of that had shifted over the years, and no one's real clear, even though at the time of David it was very clearly structured. Since then, so many had been killed, and so many lost, and so many whatever, it's hard to know exactly what the process was here, but chances are there were several thousand priests who could have been chosen by the casting of those lots, and instead... It turns out that day to be Zechariah, and he's the one who's going to spread the sprinkle, the incense. <clears throat> the incense is made of a few different spices added to pure frankincense. Um, and so for those of you who are in the, in the uh, oils business, you know how expensive frankincense is today, and it was back then as well. Um, we'll talk more about that next week. All right, so then he's to intercede for Israel, and, and he went in. And he did his thing, and he started praying, and he prayed, and he prayed, and the people stood outside, prayed, and prayed, and it got awkward because Zechariah wasn't coming out. They're waiting for Zechariah to come out and to close their time, and he's still not coming, and he's still not coming. Um, instead, he was experiencing something pretty amazing. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. It's intriguing to me. Zechariah was praying for the consolation of Israel, and the answer to that prayer is, your wife's going to have a baby. Not what I would assume Zechariah was praying for, at least not anymore. That's significant. Um, Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. You go way back, you can study who John is from when we began the book of John on who John the Baptist is and why he didn't drink wine and all that stuff, but we don't have time for it today. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, we talked about it on the in-between podcast this week. Paul and I were discussing this, and we both come to the agreement that Zechariah here is being inappropriately dubious. He is questioning the word of the angel of the Lord who has shown up. Oh, yeah? How do I know what you're saying is true? How do I know you're not lying to me? This is, that's the question here. Zechariah seems to be taking a stance of, of judgment here. Really? Prove it. Now, this is Gabriel, by the way. He's doubting the accuracy or integrity of the angel. And it's Gabriel, and Gabriel is, I think, offended by this, as you will see. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. Now, at that instant, you think Daniel. This is the first time Gabriel has shown up in 600 years. 
in a way that we know of biblically since the time of Daniel. And Zechariah would have known that name. Gabriel would have been significant to him. Many of the writings talk about Gabriel. I am Gabriel, which means, by the way, God's hero. Can you, can you hear the offense? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So you know what? That's what I think behold means here. So you know what? You're going to be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Mic drop, right? So the people are waiting. Here we are waiting. People are waiting for Zechariah, and they're wondering at his delay in the temple. The people are waiting on him. This is taking longer than usual. Finally, he emerges, and we get a little comic relief here in the book of Luke. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. Now notice, no, he hadn't. He'd encountered an angel. So his ability to communicate to them what was going on was so bad, they all walked away with the wrong impression of what had happened. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service ended, he went to his home. And got to try to explain to his wife what had happened to him in the temple without speaking. There you go. On top of that, by the way, he now has to seduce his wife without speaking. All right? And so he's unable to speak. They go home. Apparently, they have a date. And you have another sweet but comic moment when he tried to explain all of this to his community. I, I was thinking, where is the chosen cast and crew when you need them, right? I want to see this. In fact, I've decided I want to direct the scene for, for the rest of this whole story of Zechariah and Elizabeth because it, it, it even has funnier moments. Incidentally, just found out before the, between the services that, that the Chosen is, the Christmas special for the Chosen is live streaming tonight at 7 p.m. That you can go to their website or on their app and actually watch it tonight at 7. It's just, it's just really cool that it, it blew away all the other numbers in Hollywood. I don't know if y'all have been following this, but oh my goodness, it blew House of Gucci just got slammed by the Chosen. How appropriate is that? If I can just say it. Like it is a, it's, I mean, at the case, I don't know about the first, by the first weekend, I just got to tell you, the first weekend, right when they opened, the, if you compare theater to theater, The Chosen brought in five times the income of any other movie last week. So that's just very exciting. So check it out. So you might do it. I know. I think that's worthy of applause. Right. So um, there you go. So 7 p.m. tonight, if you don't have anything else going on, and apparently it's going to now be in theaters longer. I just found that out maybe too, that they decided to leave it in. Anybody else can confirm, deny? No? Okay. So... We'll see. That's the rumor. Um, I think this whole scene and many of these scenes would create, leave us in tears of mirth. Imagine the combination of shock, satisfaction, and some funny embarrassment as this elderly couple turns up pregnant. Right? Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. Yeah. Saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So she's righteous, but she's not over not having a child. She's still been feeling it all this time. We fade scene, meanwhile now in Nazareth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, which means he will add, to the house of David, to a virgin whose name was Mary, her name means bitter, and he called to her and said, Greetings, O favor, when the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what type of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now Mary is going to ask a question too. But I think when we look at it, this is a question of clarification, not of judgment or evaluation. I don't think Mary is judging Gabriel here, questioning his, his ability to tell the truth. I think she's just curious. How will that be? Said, she said to the angel, since I am a virgin. And again, we get a very different response from Gabriel. Gabriel tells her, the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. So, a young woman, no one knows how young, most people estimate early teens, and an angel shows up and says, I'm going to turn your life upside down. And some, it's not easy for us to sometimes to wrap up what this would really mean. So, Paul and uh, Colson and I were talking about this, but we're three men and would have had no, we were like kind of guess at stuff, so I'll just ask. I'm going to show a picture. What is, what is that? What's that called? A hope chest, right? Isn't that interesting? Men? Nothing? Yeah, right? So apparently, here's the concept behind a hope chest. The concept behind a hope chest is it's where a girl would put things that she was hoping for in her life, that that's where she would put those things pictures and, and ideas and, and writings and journals and, and that kind of stuff. In fact, um, uh, apparently the, like the idea, the more modern idea is like pinning something on your Pinterest account, right? And then you, like you, when you find a, a wedding dress you really like or, a, um, or a names of children that you think are really cool. We talked about going up and asking like the ninth and 10th grade boys in the, in the first service, like what are some children's names that you've picked out for your kids, right? <laughs> knowing I'm probably not going to get a lot. But I'll bet if we went to ninth and 10th grade girls and asked them, what are some names that you've picked up for your kids? They've got some very strong opinions already about some of that stuff, right? And so that's I, I part of this, that, that girls would do this kind of thing. Think about the kind of things that women, that young girls fantasize about, about their wedding, about how they're going to look and who's going to be there and, and what the situation is and how many months pregnant they will be when that happens. Oh no, that's not normally part of that, is it? And yet Mary got that taken from her. Hey, that dress you wanted to wear probably isn't going to fit you. You're going to be pregnant when, you, when Joe's finally get married. And by the way, a lot of the people who you hope will be there probably are not going to come because they don't buy the whole Son of God story. And you'll carry this shame for the rest of your life. We see that in Matthew 13, 55, the reference of someone from their hometown. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not Mary called, is this not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? When he went to his own hometown in Luke 4, they spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, right? Small town boy makes it big, comes home, teaches, everybody's impressed with him. And they said, Is this not, the jo- is this not Joseph's son? Uh huh. No, it's not Joseph's son. But that's what they were saying 30 years later, is that this was Joseph's son. Wink, wink. That's what was really going on here. By the way, Mary, you're not even going to get to choose the name of your first child. I'm taking that from you too. Think of all the things 
that the angel came to announce to Mary that God was taking from her in this moment. Ever considered the possible understanding of this? By the way, one of the ways of understanding the phrase, there is no room for them in the inn, is actually about the fact that no family member was willing to house them. That it was a shame issue. Think about what's on the line. They were probably not willing to put up, but they were ashamed of the fact that she had gotten pregnant before she was married. All the things on the line, if God were to come to us and let us know how royally, literally, sovereignly he was about to mess up our lives, would we go along with that? Would we be all for that? Here's what Mary says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. And the angel departs. Could we be still in that for just a moment? I don't know how much say Mary had in this. I don't know if she could have opted out of it. We don't know because she didn't. We talked about this in, the, in the, a part of this conversation in the podcast that did Mary have the authority to say like, wow, thank man, I'm super honored. No thanks though. Could you do that with somebody else? Um, uh, Ken sent me a text a little while later, just kind of out of the blue after listening to it, I guess, and said um, maybe she wasn't his first stop. I'd never thought about that. How about you? I was like, oh my gosh, I'd never even considered the thought that what if the first two girls that Gabriel had shown up with said like, no, not good for that. So we don't ever hear about them. Now, I don't buy that. I think that would be in the Bible if that was the case. But it's the first time I'd even thought that. What a fascinating conversation that Mary's faithfulness stands out. And it's why she is so honored. That's why we think of her so highly. Now, I don't accept that Mary was sinless. And I certainly don't accept that she is some kind of co-redeemer, as some try to claim that she is. In fact, of all of creation, I think Mary would be the most offended by that teaching, some of those teachings. But we should respect her for who she actually was, a strong, devoted, faithful woman who we are right to respect. Think about this. This was a young woman who was waiting on the Lord, and then he totally changed the direction of her life. And she just said, okay, let's do that then. That's a good sign that you're waiting on the Lord, is that when he changes the plans you've got, you're willing to go along with that. That when you're waiting on the Lord, when He comes in and sovereignly messes it all up, that you can accept His plans over your own. Verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country in a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We have no idea how Elizabeth knew all this. Was this after they'd had a first conversation at some point? I don't don't know. But Elizabeth not only knows what's going on, Elizabeth not only knows who Mary is carrying in her womb, but she knows that the baby she's carrying in her womb knows who it is, and that Mary was so faithful to accept God's changing of her plans while she was waiting on the Lord. And it's impossible, by the way, especially in today's world, not to notice that the first person to celebrate the Advent was a fetus. The first person here to celebrate the Advent this way was a fetus, celebrating the fetal Christ the Lord. I know that for some, abortion feels like merely an academic or political conversation, and blessings on you if you have that luxury. But for most others, it's a real part of their story. This little account is a great reminder that the child a woman carries is a child. 
with its own identity and its own personhood, and apparently not even the, not only the capability of feeling pain, but of worshiping. Before those now, I will say before those of you with who do have abortions in your past despair at me referencing this, it is a reminder that this very Savior it came to rescue us from the devastating consequences when we do decide to trust in our way over His way. That's exactly why He came, was to rescue us from those things. So don't despair, no matter what role it has in your, in your past. Don't despair. I'm going to hold on to Mary's poem slash hymn slash prayer for the very end of the service and get back to the narrative. Verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And Zechariah still couldn't speak. By the way, it was fun. Uh, Ryan Dennison between the services said, I've never tried to, I've never imagined before, but you've got to imagine Rebe- Mary is living with Zechariah and Elizabeth for three months. That how much, and like you can imagine Mary trying to tell her story about what had happened and her referencing Gabriel showing up. And, and Zechariah is over there unable to speak. He's like, oh. Like trying to, trying to well, how, do you, how do you sign angel? Like, like yeah, the, he came to me too. Like how do you, it's, how many funny stories must have happened through this? Zechariah could, still couldn't speak though, which is weird because you know that Zechariah assumed that as soon as Elizabeth gave birth, he'd be able to speak. That's what I would have assumed, and that's not what happened. And you can imagine Gabriel just laughing about this. Like, <laughs> you thought you were going to... Like, I've, the day when Zechariah and Gabriel met again for the first time must have been quite an experience, right? You knew I would think that it, so that's when it would end. Verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now notice, it's... Zechariah still can't speak. He has an eight-day-old son, and he still can't speak. And the mother said, no, he should be called John. And they said to her, but none of your relatives is called by that name. A little offensive there, right? So this is verse verse 62 is one of those verses that I I just, I don't know what to do with. So they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted wanted him to be called. Now, this is is the scene I want to direct for the chosen. Again, I'm totally fine, even though, you know, obviously, as being, being the era we're in, the idea of, you know, the doctor or whoever saying to my wife, uh, saying, to, saying to us, what's, what's your child's name? And her going, oh, we're going to call him Mark. And them turning to me and going, really? Is that really what you want to call him? I'd be like, why are you asking me for? She just said Mark. Like, uh, she, that's, that's kind of her. Like, in my mind, like, yeah, we'll go with that name, whatever you're, anyway. That's tough for me. But here's what blows away about this verse. Look at this. You may not have caught it. Verse 62, they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Ah, that's a little question. Why are they making signs to Zechariah? He's mute, not deaf. <laughs> I, I, I like, I, I'm imagining Zechariah trying to use hand signs to tell them, like, listen to her. And they start signing back at him. Like, and he's like, you should, you should look at his face as he falls and he realizes they're ch- like, anyway, it, I just, I don't know what's happening here. I don't pretend to know what's happening here. Anyway, so this is what happened. That, that is the situation. This is how it goes. Um, okay. On the eighth day, anyway, um, 
They said to her, uh, verse, verse 62, they made signs to the father, no idea, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, finally thought of this, and wrote, his name is John. They're all confused by this. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Somebody's learned a little lesson, haven't they? When he finally can speak, he blesses God. He doesn't doubt God. He doesn't fight with God. He doesn't disagree with God. He doesn't curse God. He's blessing God. He has a son. His son is, has his, the name that he's supposed to have. He is able to now speak for the first time. Fear came upon all the neighbors, it says. Everyone's troubled by this. Like, what is happening here? All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? Maybe this explains why when this child gets old enough to go out to the Jordan River and begin baptizing people, hordes of people follow him. They've known for years that there's something special going on here. That last little bit here. For the hand of the Lord was upon him. Everyone knew this was key. God is always doing something. God's always at work. He's always got stuff going on. And, and we want to get to be a part of it. Remember um, Blackaby's Bible study years ago, decades ago, that talked about um, the fact that our job was just to see where God was working and then get involved with wherever God was working. That's a, that's a pretty simple but great way of understanding this. We watch and we listen while we wait. We're eager, we're patient while we wait, and we trust while we wait. So I promised you an example behaviorally of not waiting and trust, what that would look like. What it is to, to, that I can give you one to say, behaviorally speaking, if you're doing this, you are not waiting on the Lord as we're commanded to do. And that is if you're disobeying Him in your waiting. If you decide to take hold of things yourself and do it your way, and sometimes we do that, we're tempted. When we say, I'm weary of waiting, so I, I, I'm in, in, in order to I stop trusting in God in this thing I'm waiting for, and I put my own hands on it in disobedience, then, I, then we know we're not. A great example of this is Abraham and Sarah waiting on Isaac. God has come and told them they're going to have a son, and they wait, and they get tired of waiting, so they pull the whole stunt with Hagar, Sarah's hands, uh, a maidservant, and to have another child. Instead, they're just going to kind of help God out a little bit in direct defiance of what He has told them, and that's not, that doesn't work out well, not surprisingly. In this example, we have this beautiful picture of the way Herod responds to what he presumes is going to be a change in plans, which involves the slaughter of children, and the way Mary responds to the change in plans, which is to trust God in the midst of the change. What a wonderful opportunity Herod had and missed because sometimes when we get tired of waiting, we begin to trust in our own understanding with all of our heart and don't lean on the Lord anymore. When we're waiting patiently, eagerly, we wait, we trust in the Lord with all our heart, and we lean not on our own understanding. And when we reverse those, now we're making trouble for ourselves. Now we're no longer waiting on the Lord. All right. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week uh, as well, some of this. But if you will, stand with me. I want us to look at Mary's prayer and read this together as our closing time here. If you've been through our welcome home team and you're ready to come join our dysfunctional family just in time for a Christmas celebration, that's what all dysfunctional families love to do. And so um, we would love for you to do that. 
Um, if you need to come and pray up here or over on the side with someone, with me or someone else, uh, you are welcome to do that as well this morning. Um, but my prayer would be that you would listen to what God has for you. What are you waiting on? And how are you waiting? Are you working faithfully? Are you working in opposition to what you know He has for you? When, we, when we're not willing to wait for a good thing that God has for us, when we start doing it our way to provide for ourselves, we're just creating problems and, uh, and we're not waiting very well. The example that Mary lays for us sounds like this. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. The very words of God.